Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the podcast where I bring you the best and brightest from the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career and life forward. My guest today, Jeff Wald, is the founder of Work Market, an enterprise software platform that enables companies to efficiently and compliantly organize, manage, and pay freelancers, and recently purchased by a little old company called ADP. So kudos on that. And he's founded several other tech companies, including Spinback sold to Salesforce, and he's an active angel investor and startup advisor, as well as serving on numerous public and private board of directors. He's also a pretty smart cookie. Jeff holds an MBA from Harvard University and an MS and a BS from Cornell. Not too shabby, my friend. And Jeff is the author of The Birthday Rules and just recently released the book, The End of Jobs, Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations, and recently named one of the one of the 100 most influential people in staffing. I'm going to want to find out what those qualifications are. We're going to have to, we're going to, have to fact check those um, by the staffing industry analyst. And now that we got the formalities out of the way, let's dig into the real conversation about what the future of work is going to look like in these strange and unprecedented unprecedented times. Jeff Wald, welcome to the podcast, my man. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan. I'm really, really excited to be here. Awesome. And a quick shout out to Dr. Simon Mills for connecting us. I mean, let me ask you a question. Is he the most interesting man in the world? Potentially, is he? Potentially. I mean, Doseki should do an advertisement with him. Yeah, and I'm I'm queuing up with him to get him on the show, but I'm waiting till Corona clears fully because I, I haven't been to his apartment. Have you been there? I have not. I feel like it's like the menagerie, right? I feel like it's like this crazy world with, with clocks and everything. But let's let let's let's pause on that. This show is about you. So why don't we start and bring my tribe up to speed a little bit? I'd love if you could give us a brief synopsis of your career of you know, kind of where you started and how we got to where we are today. Sure. Well, I started out in finance. I worked at JP Morgan uh, for a couple of years. Went off to business school as as you identified, and then after business school went to a venture firm and worked investing in startups. And I was so enamored with startups. I actually was, you know, castigated by my boss one day. He's like, you have to stop fawning over these people. You can't, you know, tell them how great they are because we have to negotiate with them. And he said, you know, if you think they're so great, you should go start your own company. We'll back you. And so I did. I left. I started my first, um, I did my first startup and it failed miserably. And I didn't take backing from my old firm. It died. funded it myself with one of my co-founders and it bankrupted me. And I actually didn't leave my apartment for, for almost a month, not because of a horrible pandemic going on, but because of just depression. You just get down on the dumps. And so, Imagine. you know, as it is with the startup game, you got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off. It took me a little while to lick my wounds, but I eventually did. We started basically the same type of concept with a different team. And we were able to take it to a successful exit, eventually sold to Salesforce. Uh, and then I started Work Market. Work Market was about 10 years, is, is 10 years old. It took us about eight years and about 70 million in venture from Union Square, SoftBank, and a few others. And we were super fortunate to be purchased by ADP in 2018 and have this as the next part of our journey. And I'm an excited member of the ADP leadership team uh, right now. 
I absolutely love it. So before we dig into, you know, current events in the book and everything, I want to go back and hit on a couple of those early failures. And one thing I always talk about is the theme on the show, right? Like those failures are the, are the, are the foundation. They're the stepping stones to the future success, but you don't know it, right? Like when you're deep in that hole, when it, when that failure is happening, I mean, look, you were, you were in a deep depression, right? You were probably at a brink of, you didn't know what was next in life. Well, looking back on that, I mean, what advice could you, could you give right now to some, you know, young founders, young entrepreneurs who may be struggling either just with their business in general or with the current situation with the pandemic? Well, the first advice I would give is to all of their friends and family to not say, hey, you're going to look back on this and it's going to be this great experience. It is 100% true. It is going to be a great experience. It's going to be, Adam, as you point out, a foundational experience, and it's going to be the thing that ladders you to your future success. But I will tell you, having been there, we are not ready to hear it. I was so annoyed every time somebody would say that, oh, you're going to look back on this. I'm like, yeah, you know what I want to do? I want to look back and not make this mistake and have all my money back. That's what I want. Thanks for telling me what I already know, right? Yeah. (laughs) And so, look, for the people that are down there, you know, look, failure is not only an option in startup world, it is the most likely outcome. Statistically, we have a 90 plus percent chance of failing. The fact that you failed, yeah. The fact that you failed is not an anomaly. It is the actual most likely outcome of the endeavor you try. And the key to success is persistence. You have to pick yourself up, you have to dust yourself off, and you have to keep going. Because really, what choice do you have? And so lick your wounds and know that you are not alone. You are not alone. It does not define you as a failure, but it is a failure. Own it, deal with it, and keep going. I love it. That's great. So let's just let's jump in right now and talk about your new book, The End of Jobs, Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. That's a mouthful of a title. And I'm going to work a little bit backwards here. So someone reading this book, what's the key takeaway or why should someone go pick up this book up from, uh, I guess we don't go to stores anymore. Why should they go on Amazon and, and pick up a digital copy? Yes. Um, well, you can go pick up this book. And if you, your listeners want to go to Amazon right now, I'll wait. Wait a second. No, okay. We'll wait. Um, we'll watch your ticker go up. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, you know, Adam, I wrote the book because I was getting very frustrated as an entrepreneur in the HR space with hearing a host of predictions on the future of work, which were so massively inaccurate. Even before, you know, I had the span of time to prove that they were inaccurate. You would sit and say, that prediction makes no sense. It's not based on data. It's not based on historic trends. It's not based on how businesses actually operate. When I was starting work market, the big statement being made in the world of HR was that by 2020, 50% of the labor force would be on demand. It was a ridiculous prediction that had literally no basis in data or fact. Now, that being said, did I take that prediction and put it in my investor decks? Yeah, yeah, I kind of did. I kind of did. But it was so inane. And so I started to write the book in order to bring some clarity around the discussion on the future of work. I would not pretend that I am some crystal ball seeing prognosticator. I I am not. But I can use historical trends. I can use historic examples. I can use the data of the world of work today. And I can extrapolate and interpolate forward what might actually be a high percentage probability as to how the world of work may fold. And that was the point of the book. Got it. So let's rewind a little bit. I mean, why do you think so many 
these predict like what are those predictions founded upon are they just you know pie in the sky hypothesis are they you know going off a more cultural trends versus you know the data and the the numbers there was no empirical evidence i mean where were they coming up with these things they are sensationalized you know we live in a world where sensationalism gets clicks and they are sensational headlines they fit fit into an existing narrative and that narrative was that on-demand labor is growing and so when people saw data, I think it was 2009 to 2010, that on-demand labor grew maybe 3% that year. People were like, oh, well, if you extrapolate that out, you're like, well, but you took one data right. point. Yeah, and what's the growth rate on that? What, what growth rate were they using? It was, it was crazy. And so, but it fed into a narrative. And it fed into a narrative that I think a lot of people were feeling at the time, which was, oh, all the jobs created since the Great Recession are on-demand jobs. They're not the real full-time jobs that people want. Because well, companies don't want to invest into full-time true. salaries. Was it the rise of you know the WeWork and the in the convertible off the shared office space culture? All of it. Just 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 all of it. The, the idea economy. that you know companies were going to screw workers any chance they got, and on-demand labor was the latest way that companies could screw workers. That fed into a narrative, but again, not in any way, shape, or form true. No. Right. But, uh, but on the flip side of that, too, I mean, listen, I've been I've been in the talent acquisition game for five years and I, and I am privy to a lot of these conversations where, you know, there's a hiring need and the conversation goes, do we do we invest in somebody full time? Right. Because everyone knows or maybe people don't don't know, like let's just say someone's salary is one hundred thousand dollars. That salary is actually we'll call it 20, 25 percent more when you talk actually more than that. When you think about when you're covering for, you know, payroll taxes, when you're talking about benefits, um, workman's comp i mean all these other factors that actually go into a salary so when you're having that actual conversation from a PL perspective right those are the things that companies take into account they could pay a freelancer a fraction of that rate still a very good rate for that freelancer and not have to cover any of any of those additional expenses so on my side i saw that happening i did now i didn't have the numbers to it but this is just based on pure observations look do those conversations take place of course they do do resource management, labor resource management strategies involve cost? Of, of course it does. Is a component of that the fully burdened cost of an employee? Absolutely. What I will tell you, though, from a pure data standpoint, having processed billions of dollars of on-demand labor through WorkMarket, our platform, that the per hour late wage rate for a freelancer is 20 to 30% higher than the per hour wage rate for yep. a full-time employee. because the freelancer has to pay for their healthcare, their training, right. their development. They're, they're their baking it in. 401k and all those other things. So they bake it in. What the benefit you get from the freelancer is that the freelancer is 100% utilized. You're only yeah. spending time on them when you need them versus in the service industry, the average employee is about 60% utilized, meaning for 40% of their time, I am paying them to literally do nothing. Right. That's the big the big benefit of engaging freelancers. And for, and for the purpose of this conversation, I mean, we'd be specifically talking about, I mean, we're not talking about, you know, blue collar labor jobs. We're talking about in office, you know, white collar jobs, correct? Or are you kind of rolling it all together? I just want to they are kind that. Of, they are rolled all together. Most okay. of the data that I do look at is aggregated. It is one of the debate points because when you look at certain industries and certain geographies, certain skill sets, there are always going to be anomalies in the data. There are going to be little, you know, situations where, oh, well, you know, did you, you know, in this situation, this, and I was like, yeah, that is entirely true. I'm talking 
on the aggregate of 164 million person labor force. Absolutely. So I want to I want to break it down and I want to look at it from the employee perspective and the employer perspective. Right. You know, what, what are those advantages for an employer? Right. To to have retained, you know, salary based employees versus going with the agile workforce. So in the book, we talk a lot about what we deem the labor equation. And I actually, in my office, it's a shame when I'm not in off my office anymore, I had up in the window, you know, I went all beautiful mind and I did a lot of calculus and tried to actually calculate the labor equation. And I will tell you, the person that actually taught me calculus came to my office one day and saw those windows. She kind of looks at it and she's like, what's this? I was like, well, this is the labor equation. She looks at me, she goes, this is gibberish. This is some Rain Man shit you got up there. Yeah, but she was like, this makes no sense. You remember nothing of what I taught you. And she was so free to say that because she was my mother. My mother oh. is a calculus professor. And so she's like, this blood. is, you misdid everything here. But that being said, the labor equation involves the intellectual property of the company. It involves customer relationships and other institutional knowledge. It involves touch points to other parts of the organization, ramp up times, repeatability of work, cost, and regulation. So all of those things are being taken into account oh, on the exactly. simple decision of, do we hire a full-time employee or do we engage a temp or do we engage a freelancer? And so it is a very, very complex decision and people like to distill it down just to price, but it's just not accurate. And, and you hit on something that's really interesting too. You know, it's that, that element of, you know, a being kind of, I don't know if we want to use the word a brand ambassador or loyal, but when you work for a company, you're, you're, you're part of them, you're an extension. And when you're a freelancer too, you're more of that mercenary mentality. And listen, generally speaking, I think that affects productivity that involves, that affects culture within a company, right? Cause when you're behind those doors and when you're actually in the office, you know, sometimes there's a little bit of tension between freelancers and, and full-time people. There's not always that cultural mesh too. And there's a cost to that. There's a cost that if you want to factor in, if we want to go down this rabbit hole, Jeff, which I'm sure you do every day because you wrote the book on it, right? When you talk about attrition, employee loyalty, these are so many of these, these X factors to take into consideration in the equation. So here is one of my favorite examples from the book, and it's IBM. IBM gets picked on a lot in the world of labor because people always talk about the IBM job in the 1960s as this paragon of employment. We'll address in a moment that that job never really existed. But in the example, in talking with a few very senior people at IBM, they drew up this, this world in IBM called Deep Blue and Light Blue. Deep Blue meant that you're a full-time IBMer, they take care of you. Light Blue meant you're a contractor. You're here, but then you're not here. And there was a period where Deep Blue people looked down on Light Blue people. Well, you're not really a part of the team. You can't come to birthday parties. You don't get to go to the outings and things like that. And then through the 80s and 90s, the number of contractors increased at IBM. We're now actually the deep blue light blue where it was about 90%, 10% in the early 1980s. Now it's about 50%, 50%. But then all the things that made deep blue so great, those training junkets, the perks, the, the pension plan, all of them started to compress or in some cases disappear. And now they looked at the light blue people and said, oh, wow, you people can kind of come and go as you want. You work on the projects you want. If you don't like something, you don't have to do it. You know, you, you can just turn down the job. You don't have to go to all these meetings that are just a waste of my time and are driving me crazy. You can work from the beach. Hmm. And so light blue became more coveted than deep blue. And that is the stage at IBM pre-COVID because I am 100% sure that light blue bore the brunt of IBM cost reductions. Because when we look at what has happened due to the pandemic, due to the health crisis, 
you have seen employment obviously have tremendous dislocations, upwards of 20% of the U.S. workforce uh, on the sidelines or through either furloughs or unemployment or dropping out of the labor force. In the on-demand economy, the things that I am seeing, not work market data, but data from the industry is 70 to 80% reduction wow. because the on-demand workforce is there to be cut quicker. Yeah, it's an easy it's an easy line item. It's a lot easier. There's no severance. It's just simple as hey, you know, end of the week is is it? Thank you for yeah, your game. Unless no, unless you have a contract, right? Unless, there's no warn act. There's there's no nothing guiding it. It's just we're done here. We're we're done here. That's fascinating. So let's talk about current events right now. Um, I mean, it's such a it's such a broad question. I mean, I see it on the front lines. I mean, I work with a lot of direct to consumer e commerce companies that are flourishing absolutely flourishing i mean we're seeing consumer behavior you know shift from broken i mean we've seen this this shift over the last you know 10 15 years anyway with consumer trends going more to online um i fear that i i think brick and mortar will be alive because i still think that people want to have that physical experience it's going to be much different but for the short term you know the shift is online that's driving the need for every aspect uh every aspect and vertical within a company that they need to hire. So what are you seeing from a data perspective right now? What hiring trends are you seeing? Um, what conversations are being had? And let's talk about some uh, potential red flags that are, are being raised right now. Well, I think that from a data standpoint, and you know, clearly based on why I wrote the book, I'm a very data-driven decision maker and thinker. I will tell you, Adam, the data is scant. And people should be very, very careful of overreacting to the various data points. The data points are constantly being revised up and down. We don't know why the Department of Labor believes that 2 million jobs were created in May. I hope it's true. I really do. But there are a lot of anomalies in those data. Yeah, sets. I mean, is it created or replaced when states are opening back up and people are getting their jobs back? The numbers aren't really clear. Yeah, no, look, it is definitely, you know, bringing back people to existing jobs. These are not new jobs, but they were jobs that were ended and then jobs hopefully that were started again. And I hope that that's true and I hope that we have a V-shaped recovery. I'm just very wary, right? I wanna see multiple data points over time. And so this is a time to be very, very cautious in making too many predictions. Now, there is a very clear prediction we can make because of the health crisis. And that is remote work. That is by far the easiest uh, in terms of making very, very concrete predictions on the future. And as I do in the book, we always start in the past. So on the remote work context in the United States of America was that 3% of the labor force worked remotely. Pre that had grown 100% pre-COVID. Right. At the height of stay-at-home orders, about 40% of the U.S. workforce worked remote. That is out of a natural capacity of 42%. The United States has the highest capacity in the world for people to work at home. Based on infrastructure, Meaning, cost of living. Not only that, but you know, look, there are certain parts of an economy. If your economy is very focused on tourism and hospitality, yeah, those people can't work from home. Right. right? The United States has a relatively small percent of its labor force in manufacturing and in hospitality, retail, transportation, and things like that. On a relative basis, that's still 58% of the labor force that cannot work from home. Now, because of the pandemic, companies were forced to put in place the policies, the procedures, and importantly, the infrastructure to allow remote work. They had resisted doing it. And also, you had that boss that always said, yeah, yeah, I know remote work's a trend and it's, everybody says it's, it's great, optics. whatever, but I like everybody in the office. That boss also 
had to deal with the fact that now all of her employees were working remotely. And you know what? It was working. It is. It worked. And so because the infrastructure is in place, because old mindsets have been shattered, instead of a slow, continued growth of the remote workforce, which is what everyone predicted beforehand, now my prediction and many other people's prediction is that we will go from 3% to 8% of the labor force working remotely. And that is a massive, massive change and one you hardly ever see in labor statistics throughout history. Yeah, that's fascinating too. I mean, then we talk about, I mean, I've been having the conversation with lots of folks that there's there's a lot of things in play here. I think there's some people and some industries where a, either you have to be in an office for whatever that job function is. There's definitely that. And there's also the camaraderie. I think that a lot of people really enjoy going to an office. People don't have the, not everyone has an ideal situation. If kids at home, you may not have great internet. You may not have a great living environment. You may be living with people that you don't want to be with all day long. Maybe you have little kids running around and, and you can't be productive at home. I mean, this is opening up so many conversations around um, employee satisfaction, employee performance. I mean, this is all uncharted here, right? And it's really going to come down to, you know, when things open back up, what is that going to look like? And I've seen some companies, I mean, we could talk about the Twitters of the world that, and Facebook that are like all remote all the time. Are they posturing there or do, do they do they really mean that? Right. Because because you're affecting the, the culture. I truly believe that humans are meant are not meant to work in silos from a productivity, from a lifestyle standpoint, from just being normal. What, what are your thoughts here? Well, one of my first thoughts is that Jack Dorsey at Twitter is an amazing, amazing CEO and leader and his people absolutely love him and love his stances on all these things. And so I do believe that they are very sincere and they are certainly putting their money where their mouth is talking to friends at Twitter. I will tell you that I 100% agree with you. Look, the reason that the remote work percentage is not going to get higher than 8%, which is, again, massively, massively high. That percent increased a lot. Humans are a social animal, right? We like that interaction. And it's important to note when we talk about remote work, the definition of a remote worker means that more than 50% of the time, you are not going to the office. And right. so it's not, it's not 100%. Absolutely. But will there be an even bigger increase in the number of people that now say, hey, I'm going to work from home on Friday or, hey, next week I'm going to work from home? Absolutely. And what did that mean six months ago when someone said to you, hey, I'm going to work from home tomorrow? You, you sit on your like, couch and watch Netflix all day or yeah, I'm going to work from home on a Friday means you're going to you're going to head out for a long weekend at about right. 11 o'clock in the morning. Right. You're going to I'm going to check a few emails. Maybe I'll take a phone call. Book but now people are working. I mean, I mean, I'd yeah. like to hear your take on the numbers too. I know that productivity is at an all time high, but I also know the uh, the other side of that, which is burnout right now. People do not have that clear um, downtime, that that yeah. that decompression time when you would either be on the train or you'd be in your car where you would go from home to work and you could decompress and go from work life to home life. I mean, I know for me personally, I'll literally be working right until that dinner bell rings, and I'll put my you know put my phone and computer down and go eat. But there's there's, there's no time in between there. So I'll give you two examples, one from one of the largest accounting firms in the world, one from one of the largest banks in the world. Uh, and then let's talk about the pandemic in, in, in general. But one of the largest accounting firms in the world feels that their productivity is about 115%. That people are just getting a lot more done. Now they can't send people into field to do field inventory counts and look through papers and that's going to be a problem at some point, but they are thrilled with the way this is going. Large Global Bank, who's on the phone with the, an executive committee, a member of the Large Global Bank, thinks it is god awful 
that their productivity is best 80%. They can't stand it. They want to get everybody back to the office as quickly as possible. And so different industries and different companies are experiencing this very differently. And it all obviously depends on the type of work being done, of course. the resources in place and things like that. But when you talk about a super important point, which is just people's feelings, right? Now, the surveys say that 20% of workers want to continue working remote. Now, the surveys also say that five days, global CFOs think 5% of their workforces can, can continue to work remote post-crisis. So perspective the, some of the data points we use to kind of come up with our 8%. But I will, you know, when I talk with executives at companies and they say, well, my workers are getting burned out, I'm always saying, well, remember, there's a pandemic going on outside. It is horrifying. People are, let alone, obviously, the social injustice that's come much more to light, People are dealing with a host of things right now that in the normal course, they won't be dealing with. They will not be playing dual roles as a child caregiver. They the will teacher, not be doing a right? Host. The teacher. My wife, I've, my daughter has three days things. left of school next week. My wife can't have this over soon enough, Jeff. Yeah, but, and then what do you do? I don't know. That's a big question. Right? And they can't decompress and go meet their friends for a drink or yeah. just go and catch some entertainment. Like all of those things are taken away. Imagine how much better people are going to be when they're doing this, they have the infrastructure, they don't have to commute. Because Adam, all of the studies prior to COVID told us very, very clearly that remote workers were more productive. They were happier. They were more engaged as employees. They had lower attrition rates. They cost the company less. They cost the worker less. They were more environmentally friendly. Like everything about it was good, but All the everybody boxes. can't do it. The last thing that I'll leave you with on, on this topic, although we can spend as long as you want on it, is that it does open companies up to entirely new pools of talent. You know, the prototype. You're worker, not limited by geography. Yeah. Well, the prototype worker that people talk about is that NBA mom, right? That like she wants to continue working. She's incredibly highly educated and productive. It's just, so many companies won't give her that flexible work schedule she wants or needs. Now entire industries that prior to the crisis, and I was on the phone with the CHRO of one of the largest global law firms, and she was very excited. She said, look, I was never able to hire people that needed flexible work arrangements, and now I can. Entirely yeah. new pools of talent are opening up to me, and I'm 100%. super excited about it. Yeah, it's flexibility too. And I think, I mean, I'd love to hear what the surveys say, but I think even pre-COVID and even now, I think it comes down to the word flexibility, right? They want to have the ability to say, hey, you know, even COVID or no COVID, I want the ability, if I need to work from home today because I got my kids, you know, I got to be at soccer practice at five on the dot and there's no way I could do that if I have to commute for my job or I have a doctor's appointment in the morning or my kid's not feeling well, or I just want to have the ability to say, you know what, today I'm not going to come to the office but I am going to be working and taking that dynamic out of it. Are you hearing a lot of that? Yep. I am hearing a lot of that. It's trust, right? Isn't the word trust? It is. Look, inflexibility in almost every context makes for a better economic outcome. You know, whether it's the U.S. economy as a whole, and people always talk about the flexibility of the U.S. economy as, as compared to the European economies. Flexibility is a very good thing for economic outcomes. Yeah, options. So let's shift gears a little bit here. And speaking of gears, let's talk about robots. You know, are robots going to take over all of our jobs? And I could talk a lot about recruiting too, because I've had some great conversation with folks in the in the AI and the machine learning space and recruiting. And there's so many things that machine learning and data and computers could do to help make recruiting more efficient, more effective. 
But specifically in my industry, at the end of the day, it's a relationship and it's a conversation. A robot is not going to close a candidate. A robot's not going to be able to answer those really personal questions and get to the root of why somebody, their motivation in, in, in switching jobs too. But technology is advancing pretty damn fast here. Are the robots going to take over? Are we going to live in the world of Terminator? So, no. Great. Conversation over. Great podcast. Done. <laughs> Mark it down. No, it is not going to happen. But you are correctly pointing out the series of subtrends that become super important, which is that the robots are certainly getting, and robots would mean AI software as well, are getting more advanced, are getting smarter, are getting cheaper, and therefore can be applied to more industries. Within that context, by the way, it's very important to remember, while robots are getting cheaper, are getting smarter, and are getting more agile, robots remain incredibly expensive, incredibly yeah, every, dumb, All the work that goes into And robots take humans to program and run and manage and sure. optimize. But let's stay on your example of recruiting. Sure. There are, when we look at 702 different jobs that exist in the economy, you need to start, and this was a great study that was done by Oxford in 2013. I did not read break, that. You need to, luckily I do. Good. That's why you're on the show. I, you need to break down the component tasks of each of those jobs. And when you find the component tasks in a job that are repetitive, high volume processes, it's the same thing over and over again, and it happens a lot. That is something that through the history of work, always, and I very careful to you when I use the word always or never, but always gets automated. And so if you have a job that more than 50% of the component tasks of that job are repetitive high volume tasks, that job will go full stop. Like it will go. You know, it's a matter of time and technology costs and all these other things, but it will go. But most jobs, the vast, vast, vast majority of jobs have only some of their tasks, 20%, 10%, 5%. And so when you think about recruiting, you think about searching through resumes, boiling up the right candidates to have those phone screens with so that you can use all of the things that bring value, real value to that relationship, to that engagement. And that is your judgment, your interpersonal skills and having that human to human interaction. 100%. Those are things that are in no way, shape or form in danger. What is in danger is removing a bunch of tasks that you don't want to do. That is in danger and that will happen in the recruiting space. But when you look at study after study, HR is one of the growth industries that people talk about because there is so much that goes on in HR that just in the near or medium term, nothing, everything's off the table in the long term. Right. But in the near and medium term, there is no world in which those jobs can be fully automated. No, I mean, it's, it, it, there's a human, there's a human element, you know, to all of that, even conflict resolution. I mean, certain things like benefits, payroll. I mean, we're not even talking about that. You know, it's that people, that, that, that fabric, the culture building, right? The, the weaving uh, within an organization. So let's, you know, I want to I wanna wrap this piece up before we move into the fun stuff here. What, what is returning, to, in your opinion, what is returning to work going to look like? Oh, that is that is a tough one. It's a broad one, you know, too. Yeah. God willing, it's it's fast. I think we're all ready to be back. And I will say that there is a delicate balance between the keeping your workers safe and getting people back to the office, making sure that workers that want to stay remote can stay remote, making sure the workers that have to come back can do it safely. In New York City, we have an even bigger challenge than in most places. It's you getting there. About the fact 
that people have to take mass transit. It's not so much being in the office. It's, it's how do you get to the office? Oh, yeah. How do you get, you know, and again, in New York, we're mostly taking the subways. I know I do every time I go to the office. And then it's the elevator. How do I get people up to the 50th floor when only one person is allowed to go in an elevator right now? So how do you balance the amount of total people in an elevator with the queue waiting to get into the elevator who are all now in a line? I mean, people will literally show up to the office, wait four hours to get to get to their desk. Talk about productivity going on. Turn around and get on the line to go home. Like that's... how do we turn the stairs, you know, into the the, the next greatest fitness crave, craze? Oh, right? well, I, I hope so. I mean, I'm a huge fan of the stairs. Except now, on the 50th floor. Right? Here's here's what I'm hearing is that the first wave back will be 10 to 20 percent of workers, the people that kind of have to be there. Then you will start establishing who that 20 to 30 percent of your workers are that, you know what, you guys can work remote and they're going to do that. And then you'll start to see teams, you know, the A team, mm-hmm. the B team, the C team, and they'll start rotating people in and out. So at best you get 20 to 30% full usage of your office space in the near term as we slowly figure out what it looks like. And that allows for another kind of keyword in the reentry, which is de-densifying and making sure that you can keep people at a safe distance from each other. Right. So there's some combination of the getting there. There's some combination of the workforce stratification of fully at home rotation fully in the office and there's some you know some context of de-densifying and all of those will play a role and right now again because i'm data driven i would be very very wary of of making too many other predictions but i can hope that it's soon and it's gonna be really interesting too how it affects culture how it affects so many other factors too i mean we could have a whole separate conversation on the hiring process but we're not going to do that here so let's let's uh let's turn the page here and and you know i want to dig into finding out a little bit more about yourself and i'd love to start out with jeff i'd love to hear what the word authentic authenticity means to you so i think the word authentic means being vulnerable when it really means something And so when I talk about Adam, I talk about a lot, you know, when my first startup went under, I never told anybody about it. I mean, obviously a number of people knew, but when Spinback got sold, you know, because it was the same company that failed that we restarted. So it had the same name. I would always say, yeah, I started this company through Spinback through various twists and turns. It got sold. I would never say, hey, I started the company Spinback. It spectacularly failed. Wiped me out. I got super depressed. And I had to move on. And it wasn't until work market, you know, was got sold or was about to get sold that I was comfortable talking about Spinback's failure. And I would tell you that that is not being authentic. I faced no real vulnerability for doing that because I had already been, you know, been successful more than 99.9% of entrepreneurs. So what is the danger to me in saying that I failed once? Nothing. What is authentic is me telling people that as I think about starting another company, I'm scared. I'm scared that maybe these were flukes, that maybe I'm more of a fraud than I think. Maybe I'm not as smart. You know, maybe I just got lucky. What if this next one fails? That's impossible. Because it shows people that I'm still vulnerable and it's right now. So that would be authentic to me. That's fantastic. And I always like to say, too, once I was able to be in the example I always give, you know, when I was fired from VaynerMedia by Gary Vaynerchuk and team over there, it took me a long time to tell people that I was fired. 
right? I was like, I, I like, I, you know, decided to leave. It wasn't right. It wasn't the right thing. And I was just lying to myself. But once I was comfortable saying that the world opened up to me, everybody was, it was relatable. So yeah. many people have been fired and let go, right? They're like, yeah, it's not a big deal. You were there for a few months. Who gives a shit? You know, it really wasn't a big deal. And I, and it took a weight off my chest and that opened up. I always tell people once you're able to get to a point of vulnerability and that's different for everybody, everyone has a different threshold of what they're comfortable with. But as you see it, as you open up a little bit and you see what else opens up to you, it's magic. It absolutely is. It is. And it takes this burden because we're all, we all have our crosses to bear. We are all are hiding ourselves. And wearing that mask, that mask is heavy. And the more of it you can let go, the better off you will be. Um, you spoke a little about it a little bit earlier when we kicked off the show, um, but I want to talk about advice. I mean, you're, you've been through it all, man. And I'd love to hear the best piece of advice that you've ever received that you take action on every single day, right? Like, what is this advice that you've got in your life that you said every day? Well, I wish I could say it was the AI the advice ideas are cheap, the will to execute is easy. Because as I think about potentially doing a new startup, I keep thinking I need a better idea, I need a better idea, this isn't that good. And I should be saying, it's fine, just go, go do it. I think my favorite piece of advice is something very popular in startup land, like there are bracelets about it and shirts about it. And it says, the key to success is getting knocked down seven times and getting and picking yourself up eight. And there are three things about it that I love. One is it's very evocative, right? It, 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 you can get that image of someone being knocked down in the dust. And the statement is not pick, not you know, standing up, it's picking yourself up because there is nobody to pick you up. You are on your own, you have to do it. That's reason number one. Reason number two is the number of times, right? Because in startup world, you get knocked down again and again and again. And there are, again, very few times where someone's putting out that hand to help you stand up. You got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off and get back in. And the third reason I love it is that it's just mathematically inaccurate. It doesn't make any sense. Like, why am I picking myself up? It does up not equate. Times? does not compute. Like, I, it should be knocked down seven times and get up seven times. But for some reason, on every T-shirt and every bracelet, it says seven and eight. And I'm just like, did I start down in the dust? And I, it doesn't make any sense. No, that that's fantastic. And looking back, right, you've been at this game for a while. Have you had your greatest professional accomplishment yet? And if it so, what was it? Well, I would say that I am fearful of that, that maybe work market was the biggest home run I'll have. And if that's the case, then you know what? God bless. It's going I'm on your plaque. Super grateful. No problem. But I would actually say that the greatest success that I've had are the people that have left work market that have gone on to do such amazing things. The men and women that came in in entry-level positions that because they worked hard, because they had such great attitudes, what else can I do? I wanna learn more. They have been able to use their experience at work market. I, and I have helped them in every way, shape or form that I am capable. And they know that I will do that for the rest of their careers. And they have gone on and now run departments and run groups. Some have started their own companies. And when I look at that group of people, that to me will always be my greatest accomplishment. And so again, if, if I've helped no one else, I'll take it. That is true leadership, my friend. 
That is a leadership statement into itself right there. And kudos for that one. Um, you know, I want to leave the show on a positive note. And for the last couple of months, we've been talking about silver linings. I'd love if you could share, you know, a personal silver lining and a professional silver lining that you've experienced over the last uh, hundred days. So the personal silver lining is spending this time with myself. Now I, I live, live alone. Um, and I've never been overly comfortable with myself. I have a lot of my own insecurities and spending my time just with myself has been a little bit of a silver lining. I've gotten to be a little bit more gentle with myself. And, you know, I am, as we all are, are my own harshest critic. And I would set all these goals and things I had to accomplish and a week would go by and I didn't do them. And I was angry and I'm like, dude, take a breath. Breathe. Be, be gentle with yourself. It's okay. And so that has been a very powerful silver lining for me personally. Professionally, as I've been able to, as much as I haven't hit my deadlines, I've been able to advance uh, a host of the side projects that I just would not have had the time to uh, to accomplish. I'm writing a movie, and that oh, is really the final stages. I've got another book that has made, I've made tremendous headway on. I've got a few kind of side tech projects. And then importantly is I have business plans for a potential new HR tech idea. Interesting. And I've moved a lot of them forward that have been very, very stuck for years. That's fascinating. I love it. And thank you for sharing that. I, I certainly appreciate it. And last but not least, um, for anybody who watches this show, you know, we, we talk a lot about um, the North Star, right? And you know, I have my North Star, my North Star is my family. And I'll ask you the same question, Jeff. When you were down at your lowest, right? When your startup failed, when you were bankrupt, when you couldn't leave your apartment and you needed to pull yourself up, you needed to look up, you need something to grab onto, some beacon of hope. And then on the other side, you two extremely successful exits, you know, you crushed it. You did really well on that. You parlayed that success and you, and you want to show gratitude. Jeff Wald, what is your North Star? So my North Star is that I get on my knees every night and I thank a higher power. I do call that higher power God and just say thank you for everything I've been given and that I will do my best to serve this community, this country uh, as best I can, because I have been so fortunate with what I've been given that it is a responsibility to give back as much as I can. I love it. Jeff Walt, thank you for spending uh, some time with us today. Thank you so much. This has been super, super fun. Where could folks find you? Where could they connect with you? Where could they learn more? Well, you can always follow on Twitter at Jeffrey Wald. I go by Jeff Wald in every other context, but that that, that handle was, was taken. It taken. Yeah, <laughs> it was taken. Uh, you can certainly find me on LinkedIn. I always accept connections on LinkedIn, and uh, the book is available at Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, and wherever fine books are sold. But still sitting in the warehouse waiting to go to bookstores. So God willing, for many reasons, bookstores will be open soon. We'll get there one day. Jeff Wall, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. And to everyone watching us live streaming across the universe, everyone listening on your favorite listening devices, thank you for spending some time with us today. I truly appreciate it. Um, this show works best when you share it. So I certainly appreciate subscribing, sharing, commenting, joining the conversation with us on Facebook. You can follow along everything on our website, www.thepodcast.com. We'll be back next week for another great episode. Take care, be good, wash your hands, and keep six feet apart. Have a great day, everybody.
wisdom is forever. But for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search The Pausecast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com. <laughs>